0: Good to see you guys. We were kind of anticipating that our crowd might be a little thin today because half our church is up at the winter retreat. They'll be back here in a little while, but um, yeah, we took over over 100 children, 3rd through 8th grade, up to H-E-B Foundation Camp in Lake, Texas. And then another 100 adult volunteers or teen volunteers that went along with us. And so I was up there. I spent the day up there yesterday, and it's just going so well. Kids are having such a great time, they're very well fed, <laughs> they're all warm, and they're having a great time, and I'm so, proud of, um, I'm so proud of our adult volunteers that go up. We got a rec team, we got a kitchen team, we got a logistics team, we got all the adults who are serving as small group leaders for your, for your kids, and, and they're all doing such a great job. And then it's so fun. You guys have the greatest kids, and thank you for sharing them with us for a weekend. And, and uh, I was up there, and one of the things I get to do is I stand at the door to the kitchen with hand sanitizer. <laughs> and trust me, third grade boys needed some hand sanitizer. <laughs> so that gave me an opportunity to visit with each of the kids and ask their names and give them high fives and stuff. And I said to one little boy, I said, are you having a good time? And he said, yeah, I wish this could last forever. <laughs> and then Kristen Burford was telling me that she got to visit with the little girl that was sitting by herself on a park bench up at the camp. And she went over and checked on it, made sure she was okay. And she says, are you doing all right? And she goes, I'm kind of sad. And and said, why are you sad? She goes, because we have to go home tomorrow. (laughs) So they're all having a great time and we were celebrating just the legacy of the winter retreat. We think it's about 19 or 20 years now that we've been doing the retreat and it's just a phenomenal legacy. In fact one of the young men who's serving on our logistics team, he, he went to camp the first time he could in third grade and Has never missed a year of camp except for one year when he was in college and it was his finals week and so he couldn't come up. But he's always served either as a camper or as a counselor or on the logistics team. And now he's up there and he's married and his wife was there serving on the rec team. And we just thought what a wonderful story of how Sibola Creek Community Church and the winter retreat has had an impact on so many young people's lives. And so we're really, really grateful for that. And thank you parents for... Uh, sharing your kids with us it's all good so um here at the at civil creek if, if you're new here today or just getting started with us um last five or six weeks we've been talking about this idea of how to have a relationship with jesus and we've been talking about it from the idea of like how in the world do you have a relationship with somebody you can't see or somebody you can't talk to like we're used to talking to each other. Or somebody you can't go hang out with. How, how do you have a relationship? Like how, do, how does a human being have a relationship with a divine being is what we've been exploring. And so we, we've been talking about this idea of faith and how our faith informs what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. We've been talking a little bit about like our soul And how that all works, we talked a lot about our heart, that intangible part of us that relates to life and relates to the people in our life. Even people who have passed away and how we continue to remember them and be inspired by them. And so we've explored it from a number of different angles. We talked about how to nurture our soul and how uh, things like um, praying And reading the scriptures as a way of understanding the words of God, how they have an impact on our soul. And and then how that impacts and shapes a relationship with Jesus. So we've talked about it from a number of different angles and and we could just keep talking about it. But I want to take a little different tact here for the next five or six weeks. In fact, this will kind of take us all the way up to Easter. I want to continue to look at the topic of how to have a relationship with Jesus... But what we want to do over the next five or six weeks is I want to look in the Gospels, the the account of Jesus' life as told by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we want to look at some characters who had encounters with Jesus. People who had either extended conversations with him or people who would have described them as having a friendship or a relationship with him. And I want to ask the question, what can we learn from these people who had encounters with Jesus? There's probably a lot of things that we could learn from those passages. But we want to specifically focus on what what can we learn about these people's encounters with Jesus about our relationship with him. And I'm I'm actually kind of excited about this because I I was getting to think about the fact that I don't typically do character studies. I almost always use like theological topical studies. And then I'll use characters in the Bible as illustrations to points that I'm trying to make. But I rarely ever just look at the life of a particular person that we meet in the scriptures. And so I, this is going to be kind of a new challenge for me. A new approach for me. And um, I'm kind of looking forward to it. And I hope that we all walk away from the next couple weeks uh, really encouraged about an understanding of what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. So this, this first account that we're going to look at, the the character who interacts with Jesus, we don't know their name. Now, all the other characters that we're going to look at, we, we, we know their name. Uh, this particular person, their name is never given to us, which I think is probably helpful uh, because basically then that says that this could be the story that would unfold in anybody's life. It didn't matter what your name was. It didn't matter if you are a man or a woman. This encounter with Jesus is pretty typical of what all of us would experience if we had the same experience as this person that we're going to look at today. So um, I want to invite you to uh, John chapter 4 if you have your Bibles. We're going to read about uh, an encounter with Jesus in John chapter 4. And um, I just want you to keep in mind this could be your experience Had you met Jesus under similar situations or circumstances, this is the way the conversation would have gone with you or with me too. Does that make sense? So we read this. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees, remember the religious leaders of his day, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, John the Baptist. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So Jesus made a decision. I'm getting away from this kind of competitive thing going on here. So he left Judea, and he went back once more to Galilee, which is kind of where his, uh, his roots are. So he's getting ready to, to make a long journey of about, about 85 miles. Now he had to go through Samaria to get where he was going. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, an Old Testament uh, reference. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, he sat down by the well. And then the note is, it was about noon. So it it was like the hottest part of the day. Now, there's a couple interesting little contextual clues in here that really have impact on the story. And I just want to rehearse a little bit of that with you so you get, get acquainted with it. So basically, Jesus is traveling from this area to this area, up here near the Sea of Galilee. And like I said, it's about an 85-mile trip. But you, you need to know some things. Is that Jews and Samaritans, they essentially hated each other. They did not like each other one bit. And there was a kind of a long history there. And I'll, I'll keep it real short. But essentially, when we read about this in the Old Testament, we'll tell you more about it with one of the other characters in the study. But um, in the long history of Israel, there was a time that uh, the Jews were dispersed in what was called an exile. They were conquered and they were shipped off to other regions of the, of the world at, at the time. And in the process of being in exile, some of the Jews intermarried with people from other races and other nationalities. And those people who intermarried, they were were then viewed by Jews as being half-breeds. And they were considered less than. The Jews sort of looked down their noses at the Samaritans because they were considered to be half-breeds. And so Jews, in their kind of noble quest to be holy and righteous people with this long-standing history as the people of God, they, they didn't like the Samaritans at all. In fact, they had nothing to do with the Samaritans. They would avoid interacting with them at any cost to themselves. And so here's what we see is that for a Jew to travel from south to north or north to south, There was the quickest route to go, or as we say, as the eagle flies, to go straight from one place to the other. It takes several days to travel, but the problem was you had to go right through the heart of Samaria. And so most Jews, they refused to do that. They would actually add a number of additional days to their trip by either taking a right or left. So if they left Jerusalem and they went left, it would take them up along the coast. But most people didn't choose that route because it was a little bit harder and it took a little bit longer. Most Jews, they would go out here across the the Jordan River, come up along the river, and then back in to come up into the Galilee area. Again, adding several days to their trip. But that protected them, that's how they saw it, it protected them from having to have anything to do with the Samaritans who they didn't like. Okay, so a little bit of context. So it says in the passage, Jesus had to go to Samaria. In other words, there was some sort of divine appointment that he had with a particular person that he was destined to meet. So then that's where we pick up the rest of the story. Another note that is helpful is that it was at noon. So the hottest part of the day. So the woman that we're about to meet, she's coming to draw water at the hottest part of the day. It's a clue to maybe her social standing in the community. You see, most women who went to fetch water, they would have done that in the cool of the morning or in the evening hours. But she's there at the height of the sun sign because she wasn't really invited to be a part of the other women in town. Make sense? Okay. So we pick up the story. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Now, note, his disciples had gone into town to buy food, so it's evidently just Jesus sitting here at the well and this woman who's come to get water. And the Samaritan woman said to him, Wait a second, you are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan, and not only am I a Samaritan, I'm a Samaritan woman. So a Jewish man asking a Samaritan woman, of, that doesn't make any sense. How can you ask me for a drink? Note, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as also did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water that's in this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty. And I have to keep coming here to draw water. And Jesus told her, go call your husband and come back here to the well. And she replied, I, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man you are now with, you now have, is not your husband. What you have said is, is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. (coughs) See, the Samaritans weren't even allowed to go to Jerusalem to worship. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We Jews, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, well, here's what I know. I know that the Messiah, called the Christ, is coming. We're looking for him. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I'm he. I'm that Messiah that you've been hearing about and looking forward to. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people in Sychar, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. (coughs) Excuse me. And many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And here was her testimony. He told me everything I'd ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Did you follow the story? <clears throat> Excuse me, I got something going on in my throat. <laughs> look at you, thank you. <clears throat> Does that look really good? <laughs> Living, water. Living water, thank you. Um... So I've been hearing this story told since I was a kid. I've heard it a hundred times. Just to kind of give you some kind of idea of how old I am. I remember being in Sunday school and the teacher used little cut out figurines that she'd put on a flannel graph board. Does anybody remember that? Yeah. So I've been hearing this story all my life. And it's usually told from like one of two or three ways the same way all the time. There's always the message about Jesus crossing the social lines, like Jesus being a rabbi talking to this woman who had a rather checkered past, or a man, a Jewish man talking to a Jewish woman, or a a Jew talking to a Samaritan. It's always a message that explores Jesus and his his, um, interest in crossing the social lines. I've heard this passage talked a lot about the historical background of Jacob and Jacob's well and how that all plays into the story of the origin of the Samaritans. You you hear this passage a lot when people are talking about like how to share your faith and questions you can ask and dialogue that you can have but you know what um that that wasn't what struck me. There was there was something else that struck me the most. And that's that's what I want to explore with you today. There's a there's a little rule that guides in helping Understand your Bible when you read it. Uh, it's a rule called the law of repetition, that whenever you see something occur more than once in a passage, it's generally the author trying to draw your attention to that particular thing. And so, there's something that occurs two, maybe three times in this passage, that I think is really noteworthy, and and I I want to I want to spend our time looking at it today. And I'll just give you a, a little heads up it might be a little uncomfortable. It might be a little awkward. But I think that the conversation that unfolded between Jesus and the woman at the well was a little uncomfortable. It was a little awkward. So at least twice in the passage, and maybe a third by reference, we read this line, He told me everything I've ever done. This man that I met, this complete stranger, he ends up telling this woman at the well everything that she had ever done. So here's the first lesson. If you're interested in getting involved in a relationship with Jesus, you need to be aware that Jesus knows everything you have ever done. If we understand Jesus to be God, and he's omniscient, meaning he knows all, and he's omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere present. Then here's something to consider, that not only does Jesus know everything that you've ever done, you ready? He was there when you did it. So Jesus knows everything you've ever done, and I'm talking about everything. He knows the times that you've been honest. He knows the time when you chose to do the right thing. He knows when you've been fair. He knows when you've been kind and compassionate. He knows when you've you've chosen to be respectful when maybe somebody... Was making you really, really angry and annoyed and you wanted to be disrespectful. He knows when you made the choice to do the right thing. He knows your successes. He knows your achievements. He knows your finest hours. But he also knows every secret that you have about things that you've done and places that you've been and the times and how many times you've done it. He knows all of that. I I could stand here this morning and I I could tell you some stories about what he knows about me. And, And I could, you know, I could choose a few of them and I could sort of sanitize them and just tell you the parts that I want you to know. And, and you'd kind of, I'd tell them in sort of a self-deprecating kind of way. And, and you might chuckle and you think, oh, boys will be boys. Kids will do that kind of stuff. That's the way girls are sometimes. You know, I, I could tell you those kind of stories. And then, then there are those parts of my life that I'd be absolutely mortified if you knew about them. I I could tell you about the years that I walked on the very edge of a very dangerous addiction. And where it took me and what I did that I'd be mortified if you knew the details. Jesus knows everything about me. And he knows everything about you. He knows about the test that you cheated on to pass a class to get a degree. He knows about the lies that you told in order to protect yourself or to get ahead. He knows about the rumors that you fed or started to create a smear campaign against somebody else that you wanted to see wrong happen to them. He knows about the one night stand. He knows about the affairs. He knows about the abortion. He knows the time that you took something that wasn't yours. He he knows about the addiction and the road that you've walked. He knows about the divorce or the divorces. He knows about the crime that you've committed that you got away with. And he knows about the crime that you committed that you served time for. He knows everything. And he was there for it. Now, listen to me. I I don't bring that up. For you to sit here and dredge up all sorts of things that you would rather just forget. The reason that I bring that up is because I want you to understand something really, really important. For most people, including many Christians, the feelings of guilt and the feelings of shame and the feelings of regret, and the feelings of embarrassment that they live with because of what they've done in their past, convince many, many people. Jesus could never love me. Jesus would never want a relationship with me, not not with what I've done. Jesus, Jesus would have no interest in being anywhere near me, let alone having a friendship with me, because Because I know where I've been, and I know what I've done, and I know how many times I've done it. And and what I want you to understand is, that's a lie. It is a bold-faced lie from our enemy, Satan, who would want nothing more than for you to live in that guilt, to live in that shame, to live in that regret, to live in that embarrassment, Under the impression that Jesus could never love you. He he wants nothing more than to tear you and Jesus apart. The fact of the matter is. That because Jesus knows everything about you. And because Jesus was there when you did it. That's why he wants to have a relationship with you. You see, just like Jesus went out of his way to go to Samaria to meet that woman at the well, Jesus left the comforts of heaven and he came to this earth. He went out of his way to come here to look for you. To invite you into a relationship with him. And he came from heaven to this earth knowing everything that you've ever done, everything I've ever done. He came here looking for you because he wants to have a relationship with you. That is the story of Jesus. That is the message of the gospel. Jesus coming to look for sinners like you and me, even knowing what he knows. Having seen what he's seen. We read in Luke, for the Son of Man, Jesus, he came, came to this earth seeking, looking for, going out of his way to seek and to save who? The lost. Those who are far from God because of their sin. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law that belong to the sect complained to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? People like that. And Jesus said, well, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. I've not come to call the righteous. I've come to invite sinners to a place of repentance where this relationship with me can be restored. Jesus hung out with so many people who were so far from him that he got a nickname. He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Maybe another way to say it is Jesus not only knows everything you've ever done, but maybe what you need to hear is that he understands everything you've ever done. In other words, Jesus knows why you did those things. Because he understands the nature of sin. And the devastation it creates in the heart of a human being. And he understands our hearts. And he understands life and the way that life works. And he understands all of the forces and factors that have influence on shaping how we become and what we try to hide from. And the brokenness of our soul and the insecurities that create all the dysfunctions in our life. He understands that. He gets it. He gets you. He gets us. And still, he wants to have a relationship with you. Jesus, better than all people, understands the devastating impact sin has on our life. You know, years ago, Sybil Creek Community Church, we became big fans of the students at the Gidding State School. Maybe you don't know what the Gidding State School is, so let me tell you. The Gidding State School, it's just outside of Austin, is a high security prison for the 400 most violent Teenagers, teenage offenders in the state of Texas. The inmates at the Gidding State School, they're guilty of armed robbery, rape, murder, things that you can't even imagine that a young person could do. The Gidding State School is kind of a unique place because they're doing some things at the prison that are different than other prison systems to try to transform the lives of these kids and give them some sort of a chance for the future. And part of the process includes a very very disciplined education. They they go to classes every day. They study reading and writing and arithmetic. And if they're on their best behavior, they can participate in sports. And the Getting State School has a football team, has a basketball team, and has a baseball team. So years ago, here at Cibolo Creek, we had, we had learned that the Gidding State Indians were coming here to San Antonio to play a football game. They're going to play against the TMI students. And I challenged our church family. What do you, what do you say that, that we go and we be the fans for the Gidding State Indians? Because here's the truth of the matter. They, they play several games in a season. There's never anybody in their stands, other than some security guards and some prison administrators. On a very rare chance, a very rare occurrence, they may have a family member who might live in the area that might come to the games, but most of these young men who play on these football teams, they grew up in homes without a dad. The dad's either in prison or dead. The mom, more times than not, the mom's life is is very, very broken. Oftentimes, she's a prostitute. Just trying to make some money to pay her rent, put some food on the table, and to cover the cost of her drug habit. That's the kind of homes that these young boys grew up in. So it's not Friday night lights in Texas. It's not like the whole town showing up to cheer on their favorite boys. There's nobody sitting in their stands. And I said... Then let's be the church that sits on their side of the stands. We showed up that night at TMI. with Nearly 500 people from Sibolo Creek Community Church. We more than doubled the number of people who showed up for the home team. One of my proudest moments of this church. We had signs with their numbers on it. We cheered them. We left them with um, snack bags to take on the buses back home. But it was interesting. I, I, my heart really got tugged toward these young men and, and what they were going through and, and how they'd gotten there. And, and so I, I got to know one of the administrators there. I got to know the football coach and, and started some conversations with him. And they introduced me to the chaplain. And I was exploring the idea of maybe getting involved as a chaplain at the Gidding State School. And a number of factors, it, it just didn't work out. But along the way, uh, one of the administrators recommended that I read a book to better understand what's happening. It's probably one of the best books I've ever written that marked my life. And it's called uh, Last Chance in Texas. It's written by uh, John Hubner. He's an investigative journalist. And he was given um, access into the getting State School and to be able to interview and, and get to know some of the inmates and sit through some of their counseling sessions and, and just sort of watch how it all worked. And he tells a wonderful story about the history of the school but I was just shocked at what I learned. Absolutely, I, like, I couldn't even imagine that the kind of homes and the kinds of situations and circumstances that these kids grew up in, they had been on the receiving end of unimaginable violence and abuse. And they had witnessed things that none of us would ever want to see in our lifetime. In fact, we, they have seen stuff that we only see in horror shows. One of the young men in the story, when he was just like four or five, he found himself up underneath an end table in a living room and he watched with his own eyes as his mother was brutally murdered right before his eyes. Well, that leaves scars, that creates hurt. And what I came to realize is that many of these kids, they were raised in a situation of violence and abuse that they just understood to be normal because it was all they ever knew. Nobody was modeling for them anything positive, anything helpful. That's all they ever knew. And so, in fact, many times when they commit the crimes that they commit... They think they're doing the right thing because they're trying to buy some, they're trying to get some money or trying to get something they can sell to make some money to feed a brother and sister who lives at home. Now listen to me, here was the lesson that I learned from the book. It doesn't excuse their behavior, but it sure explains it. And that's what I want you to understand about the brokenness of your heart and soul because of the devastating impact of sin and the places you've been and the things that you've done in your past. God understands that, it doesn't excuse it, it explains it. Does that make sense? So if we can get that, that the Jesus that we want to have a relationship with knows everything that we've ever done. And not only knows it, but he understands it. Then there's some things about the relationship that I think are unparalleled to any other relationship that we may ever have in life. So here's a couple of things that I think we observe from John chapter 4 that may be helpful. The first one is this. Even though Jesus knows everything that you have ever done, he invites you into a relationship with him. That's where he begins. He knows all about your checkered past. And he invites you into a relationship with We see it all through the scriptures. Revelation chapter 3. Here I am, Jesus says. I'm right here. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door of their life, I will come in and I'll eat with that person and they with me. We will enjoy a relationship with each other. Anyone, anyone who hears my voice and opens the door. I don't care what you've done. If you'll open the door, I'll come in. We read this, one of the most popular verses in the Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that Whoever, I don't care about your past, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Look at this, Romans chapter 5. God demonstrates his love for us in this. This is what makes his love so markedly different. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why? Because he wants a relationship with us. We, we got to go. We got to hurry. To, even though Jesus knows everything you've ever done, he offers you everything he has to give. Whatever Jesus has, he wants you to have it too. He wants to share it with you. Jesus answered to the woman, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I want you to have that. So we think about like themes of redemption, that Jesus paid the price for our sin, so that we could be bought back from slavery to sin. We, we think about forgiveness. He, he wipes clean all of our offense before his holy eyes. He, we talk about salvation. He rescues us from the penalty of our sin and gives us the gift of eternal life. All of these things that Jesus wants you to have, even though he knows everything you've ever done. Look at this, in him, Jesus, we have redemption through his what? His blood, meaning he had to give all of his life through his blood the forgiveness of sin in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he's lavished on us. This is the relationship he wants to have with you. It took Jesus everything he had to give to give you everything he has to give. He gave his life for you, for me even though he knows everything about us. And then finally, even though Jesus knows everything you've ever done, he wants to use your story to impact others. The woman at the well, he told her everything she'd ever done, and she runs back into town, and what was the story that she told? You're not going to believe it, there's a guy out at the well. He told me everything I've ever done, and The town responds, who is this? And then they tell her, because of your witness, because of your testimony, we went and checked it out. We found it to be true and we've come to believe too. In Acts, we read this. You will receive power. You who follow Christ, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. He says, you will receive power and you'll be my witnesses. Who are those people? Well, many of them, many of them stood outside of Jerusalem just weeks earlier and said, crucify him. Crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. The very people who arranged for the crucifixion of Jesus, he's later telling them, I can use your story to be a witness of the gospel message of my love and my grace toward human beings. I mean, probably the best story in all of the Bible about God's God's ability to use somebody whose life is very checkered in the past is the Apostle Paul. When you know the places he's been and the things that he's done, I love his testimony. He says this, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord because he's given me strength that he considers me trustworthy, me of all people, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I was a violent man. That, that's my story. That's my past. That's what Jesus knows about me. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And so Paul says, here's a trustworthy saying. You can bank on this. It deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. That's my story, and God used the story of the Apostle Paul to literally change the first century world. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. That's your story, too, if you'll make it available to him. But friends, I'll tell you, if you you rehearse your story and in the shame and the guilt and the fear and the embarrassment, you hide it from others, God can't use it. Because you're living in the backwash of the consequences of that. And you're not letting it be set free to be used by God for his glory. So here's what I want to leave you with. Your kids are just about due here. In a relationship with Jesus, there are no secrets. I meet people all the time who live with secrets. I meet couples who've been married for years and still don't feel safe enough with each other to tell the truth about who they really are. But in a relationship with Jesus, there's no secrets There's only the life-giving grace of the one who knows everything about you. And there's not another relationship on planet Earth that offers you that. So I invite you into a relationship with Jesus, the one who knows everything about you. Make sense? Let me ask you to stand together. Folks, if I've not had the opportunity to meet you, I'd love to do that. Just come here to the front and visit. I'd love to get to know your name. Shake your hand and find out a little bit about you. So please take the opportunity to do that if you'd like. Father God, thank you. Thank you, Father, for that one place in all of our experience where where we don't have to hide. And we don't have to pretend. And we don't have to put on an image like we have it all together. With you, we're safe. With you, we're so loved. With you, we have nothing but grace to enjoy being in a relationship with your son, Jesus. So, Father, I ask that you do a work in our hearts that we would come to enjoy the relationship that we have with your son, Jesus, and the safety, the trust, the openness, the forgiveness, and the healing that it it offers us that living water that Jesus speaks of may it may it flow as a fountain in our souls i pray and ask in the name of christ our lord and savior amen thank you guys for listening we'll see you next sunday